This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the only investment research platform built for the investor. With traditional research vendors, the diligence process is slow, fragmented, and expensive. That leaves investors competing on how well they aggregate data, not on their unique ability to analyze insights and make great investment decisions. Tegas offers an end-to-end platform with all the data you need to get up to speed on a company or on a market, with up-to-date financials, customizable models, management and culture checks, and of course, a vast and growing library of expert call transcripts. Tegas is changing the world of expert research and the investment process. Learn more and get your free trial at tegas.com slash Patrick. Today's episode is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn a 5.1% annual percentage yield with a high yield cash account. And while we can't say for certain that's the highest interest rate out there, we can say that at the time of this recording, that's higher than Robinhood, higher than SoFi, Marcus, Wealthfront, higher rate than Betterment, Capital One, Ally, Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo. I think you get the point here. If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description, U.S. members only. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I'm Zach Fuss, and today we're breaking down Arthur J. Gallagher, referred to as Gallagher or AJG, a global insurance brokerage. To break down Gallagher, I'm joined by Mike Hayward, a portfolio manager at WCM Asset Management. AJG was established in 1927 when Arthur James Gallagher started his insurance brokerage, and today his grandson Patrick Gallagher serves as CEO. Patrick started with the business as an intern in 1972 and took over as CEO from his uncle Robert Gallagher. Pat Gallagher's father, John, held the role of vice chairman when his son was named CEO just to highlight how deeply involved the Gallagher's family has been in the growth of the business. AJG is one of the largest insurance brokerages by revenue, exceeding $10 billion, competing with the likes of Marsh & McLennan, Aon, and Willis Towers Watson. During this conversation, we discussed the company's successful acquisition and integration strategy, the strength of the insurance brokerage industry, and how the shifting industry dynamics will impact the durability of their competitive advantage. We hope you enjoyed this breakdown of AJ Gallagher. Mike, thank you for joining us to break down AJ Gallagher, a business that's been particularly impressive in its performance over a long period of time. I understand it's a business that's been family controlled and run for over 100 years, fascinating company and broader 
insurance brokerage industry that people probably aren't as familiar with as one would think. I thought maybe just to start, for a business like this, it's always helpful to start with the basics. So just simply, what does this business do? Thanks for having me, Zach. So at a basic level, Gallagher is an insurance broker. That means that they act as an intermediary between somebody or a business that needs insurance and somebody who writes it. That would be a carrier like AIG or Chubb who can take that risk onto their balance sheet. I guess if you take a step back and ask what the purpose of an intermediary in this industry is, that's a fair question. But consider that most of where Gallagher and the other large brokers are acting as an intermediary is in commercial lines where the risks are more complex, there's multiple carriers, it's significantly less homogenous and standardized than personal lines that you would be familiar with, like an auto policy. And so if we were to zoom out on the industry broadly, can you kind of take me through the value chain and who the major players are between carriers, brokers, personal lines, commercial lines? There's like a lot of moving parts. And so I think it's helpful if we can distill it down to the parts that matter and who we're going to focus on today. The total insurance industry right now is probably about $7 trillion of premiums globally. About half of that is life insurance and half of that is PNC. And if within the PNC bucket, loosely half of that is commercial insurance, which is typically the pool that we'd be interested in for these commercial insurance brokers. If you look at the drivers of revenue for all these companies over time, they're all fee and commission-based, where the commissions are on average about 10% of the value of those premiums. The brokers themselves don't take any risk, underwriting risk onto their balance sheet. And so when you think about the macro drivers of this business, it's really how that premium pool develops over time. And you can think of that in terms of what's called exposure and rate. Exposure is essentially the value of the property and liabilities being insured. So that's driven by things like property values, number of employees, things like that. And so the loose tether that that would have is to nominal GDP. When you're talking about rate, that's essentially the amount of money that the carriers are charging in order to ensure that exposure. And that typically operates on its own unique cycle. So in insurance parlance, you talk about a soft market referencing periods where rates are declining, a shallow or flat market, and then a hard market where rate is rising. If we look at some of the major players in the industry, you do have the likes of Marsh and Aon. Marsh is the biggest insurance broker in the world at the moment with the group revenue of about $22 billion, although some of that would be in unrelated consulting activities. You've then got Aon at loosely $13 billion of revenue, and Gallagher's now the third biggest insurance broker in the world. They did about $8.5 billion of revenue in 2022, and they'll come in with about $10 billion of revenue in 2023. You mentioned it, but more specifically, where does Gallagher play and what is their specialty? So maybe to start, we can talk about some of the business segments that Gallagher has underneath its umbrella. 
and then focus a little bit more on the retail broking segment because that best typifies what Gallagher does. So at a high level, the business does both broking and risk management under their brand Gallagher Bassett. That's a lower margin business and essentially helps Fortune 1000 companies and carriers get their workers' compensation cost of claims down, among other things. Within broking, Gallagher operates both in the US and internationally. That's about a 65-35 split, with the international portion being mostly in the UK and the Antipodes. But more interestingly, underneath broking, you have what's called retail. That's about 45% of broking. Wholesale, that's slightly less than 10% of broking. Reinsurance is slightly more than 10 and employee benefits is about 20. Retail is essentially the model that we described, where they're in an intermediary between a carrier and a client. Wholesale is essentially a broker for a broker. So they don't deal with the end clients. They only ever deal with the carrier and a retail broker. Reinsurance broking refers to a broking model between a reinsurer and an insurance company where insurance companies want to pass some of the risk off their balance sheet to a reinsurer, essentially insurance for an insurer. And employee benefits is things like broking for healthcare plans for employees. In the retail segment, you've got companies like Marsh and Aon, where their customers are typically very, very large, but you've also got players like Gallagher and Brown and Brown who play in that mid-market. The higher end of the market's more consolidated and went through its consolidation period really in the late 90s and a little bit in the mid-2000s, whereas the mid-market is dramatically more fragmented. So in the listed space, you've got Gallagher and Brown and Brown, but privately, you also have some PE-backed roll-ups that look quite similar to Gallagher and Brown and Brown, some privately listed businesses. And you also have a very, very long tail of independent brokers and agencies that serve that market. So one of the things that kind of strikes me about this business, it intuitively seems like it'd be somewhat commoditized. You and I can put up a shingle, form a relationship with the carriers, and then go and do this. What is special about this business? I've been the secret source of Gallagher really down to three main things. And we can go through each of those in turn and spend a bit of time on them. I'd say the first is just the broader industry dynamics. They've been very durable and favorable over a long period of time. The second would be Gallagher's ability to deploy all their excess free cash flow into M&A, which has added value over time. And the third, specific to Gallagher, would be really the culture of the company and how well that aligns with what they do. So maybe to take the industry dynamics first, I think if you take a step back and look at the stock performance of listed broking peers, you would notice that they've outperformed the S&P and other broad indices over almost every time period, 30 years, 20 years. 10 years, and even more significantly of late. 
So you got to ask yourself, what is special about this industry? I think we got to it a little bit when we spoke about the high-level drivers, but underneath the fact that they're a toll booth on the insurance industry, essentially, it's important to note that all of these companies have incredibly high retention rates. The retention rates are about 95%. The business is very, very sticky. And so the revenue of these companies is driven by insurance premiums, which tend to be very economically defensive and despite undulations in the insurance cycle, have grown over time. And if you look at Gallagher's revenue specifically, you can see that there's a tether between their organic growth over time and the insurance cycle. But what's pretty remarkable is just the stability of their organic growth. In flat to soft markets, it's generally been about 4 to 6%. In hard markets, it's been significantly higher than that. So it's about 10% at the moment. And even during the GFC, it only declined about 2%. Their total revenue, so including M&A, has been positive every single year since 1963, except for 2020 during the COVID period. You can only trace back the filings until their IPO in 84, but... You can go back and look at some of the high-level numbers in a book that was written about the company called The Gallagher Way and see that this was a growth company during the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and even in the last couple of decades. I think the stickiness comes down to the fact that this is a relationship business. There really isn't a need for the customer to switch providers unless they do something that's actively negative. And there are some scale benefits here, unlike some other services businesses that you might think of, partly because of the commission-based structure, partly because especially in recent times, there's benefit to analytics that's becoming increasingly important. And of course, having a very, very large pool of premiums, which you aggregate, helps you in your negotiations with the insurance carriers. I guess maybe the short answer is, I don't quite know why the industry has been so good for so long, but there is something to the fact that Gallagher was founded in 1927, and it's been an excellent business for almost that entire period, survived the Great Depression, and the referenced earlier has been a growth business for a very long period of time. And you can say the same for some of the other brokerage businesses, which trace their roots back to 50 to 100 years ago. You've mentioned a few times that retention is very good for this business. Can you explain why that is? If I think about my personal experience of buying insurance, I don't feel particularly loyal to a broker or an insurer. And I just choose the policy that gives me the best deal. Why would it be any different in commercial? So I think you are better off thinking about the relationship that you might have or a business might have with other professional services businesses as an analogy here, rather than thinking about standardized personal lines like an auto policy. I think as an aside, incidentally, the US market, even for very standardized personal policies, does actually remain 
quite intermediated and there's some structural reasons for why aggregators have taken off less than they might have in markets in the UK. But it is true that in personal lines, you've seen substantial disintermediation and direct channels have gained share to the benefit of the likes of Geico Progressive who have strong direct offerings. Maybe getting back to the question, perhaps a tax advisor or CPA is a better analogy here to use, at least for a mid-market broker. The broker has a key advisory role that they play for the client. They need to understand the client's risk profile. They need to understand the various forms of coverage that match this. They need to understand the carriers, have relationships with carriers, have knowledge about things like policy wording, and be able to source the best rates in the market even when policies aren't necessarily standardized. Even the simplest of businesses need multiple forms of liability and property insurance. And sometimes the types of coverage that the business needs will change over time because their own business evolves and because new risks like cyber emerge over time. Clients might not know if they've got coverage gaps, if they're overinsured, if they're underinsured, and it's unlikely that they'll have comfort on the rates that they're getting. I think maybe something that helps demonstrate that there is some level of expertise and tailoring required here is just the fact that Gallagher themselves sets itself up into 27 niche practice groups, for example, one that serves K through 12 education, one that serves real estate and hospitality, etc. And the fact that such a structure exists does show that it's optimal to have some level of specializations who provide adequate risk advice to the client. I think maybe on top of the fact that this is specialist advice that the brokers are offering the clients, I think unlike some services, like maybe a real estate broker, there's an ongoing service requirement here. So they're going to need to buy insurance at least once a year, and they're going to need to be covered constantly. And so if you combine those two factors, it means that the client's got an ongoing relationship with the broker, and the broker can build knowledge of their operations and risk management needs and effectively build trust with a client. So when you add all that up, it starts to feel to some degree intuitive why status quo bias does exist in this industry. The client needs an active reason to change broker, like a breach of trust or poor client service. And most of the time, a good broker is not going to offer the client such a reason. And then why do you think that the market has underappreciated how sticky this business model really is? Not just for Gallagher, perhaps, but for its peers. I mean, Everybody is starting to see the benefits of some multiple expansion. And so I'm just curious kind of what may have changed. I guess there's a couple of ways one could speculate on that. One is just that if you look at some of the sell-side research, these are generally covered by insurance analysts. Insurance is seen as a somewhat technical topic for a lot of generalists, even though these brokers are fairly simple businesses at a high level. Because of the capital intensity and commoditized nature of the insurance business, a lot of these businesses that would generally trade or price to book, but have an earnings multiple in the single digit range. And so broking businesses would always trade at a significant premium to them, even if they're undervalued. 
And so maybe the magnitude of just how much of a premium a capital light toll booth in the industry should be valued at relative to a carrier has been something that at any one point in time is maybe harder to spot. I think maybe another reason in more recent times has been the fact that the industry did go through one challenging period from the early to mid 2000s when these brokers were earning contingent commissions. Essentially, that means that the carriers were paying the brokers for some performance metrics that business that they brought them were achieved. Marsh in particular was making a lot of money off contingent commissions. They generally weren't paying the producers in the same way from these contingent commissions. And so it was incredibly high margin. And Elliot Spitzer went after Marsh in particular, but the idea of contingent commissions. And for a while in Marsh's case, these went away and collapsed the margin structure for a period. And there may have been some hangover from that period in the stocks. It seems like M&A is core to Gallagher's strategy. I think they do tens of tucking acquisitions each year. Can you just describe that part of the strategy and how it's been so creative to their business model? Maybe just before we get there, I think one other reason that some of these brokers have been good for a long period of time is that the industry went through a consolidation period. When we're talking about brokers like Marsh and Aon, that consolidation period was really in the late 90s and then culminated in the mid-2000s when Aon bought Benfield, which is the equal biggest reinsurance broker in the world alongside Guy Carpenter, which is Marsh's brand. That consolidation has been slower to take place in the mid-market. And as you point out, really key piece of Gallagher's strategy is the tuck-in M&A that they do. So Gallagher's been a prolific acquirer for a very long period of time through both these tuck-in acquisitions and sporadic larger deals, which tend to be opportunistic in nature. So the recent acquisition of Willis Re, which we may get onto being maybe the best example of that. When we're talking about the tuck-in acquisitions, they do about 30 to 50 a year. That number's grown a little bit over time, but has been a very, very consistent feature of the company. And the market structure is really what allows them to do that. The mid-market is served by thousands of independent brokers and agents. And despite the fact that Gallagher's done so many deals alongside others that have engaged in a similar strategy, they're probably still about 19,000 of these independent brokers and agents left. So it'll take a very, very long time for Gallagher to reach the end of their M&A runway. I think asking why this works is an interesting question. So maybe at a basic level, integration seems to be fairly seamless in this industry, especially when we're talking about these smaller tuck-in acquisitions. It's a very tried and true strategy for Gallagher, but also for others. And it just seems to have worked over time. I guess there's other features of the industry which make it um, amenable to a roll-up strategy. I think the fact that retention rates are high, that it's very economically stable and predictable really help this sort of a strategy. And I think that 
while there is competition for these deals, there's a limited number of players in the market for whom this makes sense. Multiples have expanded. And so it's always a worry when you've got such a strategy that essentially the returns on that capital spent get bid down over time. If we look just five years ago, Gallagher specifically was paying about seven times EBITDA for their tuck-in acquisitions. And the side, I think EBITDA is EBITDA or, or sometimes EBITDA, which they use in this industry, is, is a fair number to use just because they're capital light. Unless you think the business is going to flee, I think Xing out the amortization is a fair way of doing things. Those multiples have expanded to about the 10 or 11 times times level in recent times with competition from PE and, and other acquirers. But I think that still makes sense for Gallagher. It's fair that incremental returns on organic growth are close to infinite for this kind of a business. But if you compare the opportunity cost of either buying back stock, which is what some of the larger consolidated brokers do, and doing these deals, I think that a starting yield of about 7 or 8% and strong, stable, organic growth from there is a value-added use of capital. And there's some nuances with Gallagher around some of their alternative energy and clean coal investments that they've historically made, which give them substantial tax credits, which essentially allows them to buy down that multiple a bit. I think what's also important to, to talk about is why the sellers sell to Gallagher or one of the other players in this space. I think you get different kinds of sellers. So some of the owners of these brokers and agents are essentially selling to PE in order to take their own out and essentially exit the business. Gallagher tends to prefer sellers that are kind of in it for the long haul and essentially see the writing on the wall with respect to how much they're going to need to spend in data and analytics and might just have ambitions to grow their businesses a bit more going forward. And there's various ways that Gallagher can help them achieve that. I think something else to think about is that producers or the client-facing people in these businesses are commissioned. So while Gallagher earns commissions, the producers tend to earn about 25% of those commissions. And so it could be perfectly economically rational if the seller thinks that they can grow their business more to sell it to Gallagher for a somewhat attractive multiple to Gallagher, but then grow their business substantially subsequently to doing that. The M&A success is a function of strong integration, alignment of incentives. I guess the way that they capture this is what they call the Gallagher way. Sometimes it's difficult to articulate why company culture matters, but I think it is unique here. What can you share with us to help us better appreciate what the Gallagher way really means in the context of this business? Culture is really key to the Gallagher story. It's something that they very, very front-footed about and something that they've emphasized for a very, very long time. And so maybe the history of the company is a good place to start. The business was started by Arthur or Art Gallagher in 1927. 
he was the son of an Irish immigrant, and he was working at another broker and essentially became disillusioned when he was a top performing salesman in that office, but somehow was getting paid less than some of his peers who were perceived to come from upper echelons of society. And so right from the start, he really felt that broking is a relationship business, that it's a sales business, and that sales and your service to the customer are really what makes it tick. And so the culture that he kind of pioneered from the beginning really always had that front and center. And Gallagher's always rewarded the producers in the business well, and has always taken a very strong stance with respect to treating their customers well. The business has been in the hands of the Gallagher family for basically the entire history. It's pretty remarkable that they've only had three CEOs during that coming on 100 years of business history. So Art Gallagher founded the business and his son, Bob Gallagher, took over the reins of the CEO in the early 1960s. The current CEO, Pat Gallagher, is Bob Gallagher's nephew, so Art Gallagher's grandson, and he's been in place as the CEO since 1996. So that stability of leadership, stability of family involvement has been incredibly long running. You talked about the Gallagher way. That was something that is their way of describing the culture of the business. It was formally written down by Bob Gallagher in 1984, just prior to the IPO of the business. And if you look at them, you can kind of see that they are pretty cumbersome, poorly written, kind of contradict each other at times. But I think what it really captures is the essence and spirit of this company and the key aspects of the culture, which are its sales orientation, its customer service, its very outwardly aggressive and competitive spirit, but very inwardly collaborative nature of the company. And just reading through a book that's also called The Gallagher Way, which the company periodically publishes, you can see that this is a really long running feature of the company. When we were speaking to Doug Howell, the CFO, who's incidentally also must be one of the longest running S&P 500 CFOs in place, having been there since 2003, we kind of asked him for examples of this. And he talked about how their head of real estate in hospitality, Alex Glickman, who sits in California, will help somebody in Minneapolis sell a real estate commission, even though the business is kind of organized into local offices and under these industry practice groups. They'll speak to each other about how that commission gets split. Head office doesn't really get involved in these conversations. Now, if you think about how to scale something like that to 50,000 people, I think it really has to be something that's part of the core DNA of the company to really keep that spirit alive between the employees. All right, you've done a good job, I think, at explaining the key features of the business, but can you spend some time walking us through the financial model any key numbers or KPIs that we should pay attention to? 
As previously referenced, Gallagher's revenue is about $10 billion from a combination of fees and commissions. And within the brokerage space is a bit more commission oriented than some of its peers. About 60% of the revenue that Gallagher generates is paid out as compensation to staff. So their costs are heavily skewed to compensation, as you would expect. And about half that compensation, or about 20 to 30% of commissions, paid out to the producers specifically. So that tends to be a pretty variable portion of compensation that moves up and down largely in line with the revenue that Gallagher generates. The rest of their operating costs are split between other staff costs, which are maybe more back office oriented, things like people doing tasks like policy checking, and then other costs that you might expect. So T&E, technology costs, etc. Those latter costs tend to be a bit more fixed in nature. So Gallagher's margins tend to expand with the level of organic growth being a key variable there. Gallagher talks about needing at least 4% organic growth in order to see some level of margin expansion. And they would expect about 50 to 75 basis points of margin expansion going forward. But in recent years, they've seen materially more than that because a combination of factors. Firstly, a lot of efforts that have been put in place to offshore some of their back office costs with what they call their senses of excellence in India. Secondly, during the COVID period, some costs like TNE moving down or going away for a brief period of time. And then, of course, in recent years with inflation and with a confluence of factors that have been very favorable to the industry, their organic growth, which had averaged about 5% for the previous decade, has actually been about 10% in the double digits in certain periods. That all translates to what they call an EBDAC margin of about 30% currently, and that was sitting at about 25% five years ago. Just maybe a quick reference to that EBDAC measure. That's similar to EBITDA, except that the C represents changes to how they're valuing the earnouts that the acquisition targets have. That's not a very big line item. It nets out to about zero over time. And so it's probably fair to exclude that from a profitability measure, especially if you're looking at a time series. Maybe two final things to mention about the financial model that number one, Gallagher does earn interest income on funds which they hold for clients before they pay out premiums. And there's a little bit of a lag between when the Fed funds rate goes up and when they experience that. But that's obviously been material to the company in more recent times. It's not especially large portion of revenue, but it's 100% incremental margin. And there may be the second thing to reference in there. They previously had a corporate line, which includes revenues and costs from their clean energy operations. Gallagher's historically had investments in clean energy, including clean coal production facilities. These have been sunset, so they're no longer creating noise on the income statement, but the tax credits that Gallagher benefited from as a result, are substantial and are going to last for many years into the future. 
And these kind of generate a bit of excess cash flow to help them effectively buy down the multiples on their acquisition targets. You've spent time talking about the steady growth trajectory of the business, the stickiness of the customer cohort, the business model writ large. But what are the risks with a story like this? What would have to happen for things to kind of come apart? I think for us, there's really three buckets that we would worry about. The first would be the fact that right now, we're in the hardest insurance market for about 20 years. The last time things looked like this was in the early 2000s. And Gallagher in particular has seen its margins expand greatly over the last five years. It's organic revenue growth, well above trend. And for the first time, its valuation expand quite meaningfully. Hard markets don't last forever. In fact, they tend to be significantly shorter lived than soft and flat markets. And so just that combination of factors means that for once you might be in a scenario where you've got above trend levels of earnings, as well as a kind of a historically high valuation. And the last time some of these companies underperformed was kind of subsequent to that period in the early 2000s. So I wouldn't necessarily see that as a structural risk for these businesses, but it's something worth keeping in mind. I guess the more meaningful risks that you would worry about would be, number one, disintermediation or fee pressure. And number two, risks that are related to any prolific acquirer. When it comes to disintermediation, there's a few things to talk about here. People have speculated on broker disintermediation for a very, very long period of time. And if anything, in the commercial space, the industry has only become more intermediated over time. You can talk about the wholesale market, which we haven't done so that much, but essentially that's just another layer of intermediation. Um, which is really used to place specialized risks with carriers that are more difficult to access, something called the ENS market, which is outside what's referred to as the admitted or regulated market. And that channel has grown very, very meaningfully over the past five to 10 years. Some of those are cyclical factors, but some of that's structural as well and has to do with the emergence of new and more complicated risks like cyber being an example. So there's really no evidence that the trends are against intermediation in this business. You can also think that the advent of the internet, which is essentially an information distribution mechanism, has come about over the last 20 or 30 years. It's disintermediated other businesses, but it really hasn't had an impact on the broking business. So while I'm not quite sure what things like AI will imply for a business like this, it seems like it's really been tested against changes in technology. And I'd say that technology is something that really benefits the larger brokers simply because these local broker owners don't have the capacity or the will to invest behind more sophisticated data and analytics tools more sophisticated technology infrastructure. And so it really gives them a reason to sell to 
a scaled business like Galaga. I think finally on integration risks, this is a risk. I'd see it as a much more significant risk for larger acquisitions that Gallagher or the other brokers do. If you look at recent examples, there have been cases of acquisition indigestion. It arguably happened to some degree when Marsh bought JLT. All of these acquisitions have been value-added over time, but there is the chance that on some of the larger opportunistic acquisitions like Willis Re. Gallagher experiences some trouble integrating these businesses. Ultimately, I think the beauty of these businesses is that I don't see a whole lot of risk to them. And I think the risks that really do exist are fairly obvious. And you might get a chance to see them begin to happen in real time if they do. Insurance is a very, very slow moving industry in terms of how it evolves. And so I wouldn't expect one of these risks to be particularly surprising. And you'd probably see early trends or signs along these lines. Okay. So we generally understand that the insurance industry is very heavily regulated. You've talked a bit about contingent commissions and how that's affected parts of the industry. How does regulation affect Gallagher and their operations more specifically? So the contingent commission scandal really dates back to the sort of early to mid-2000s with the Elliott Spitzer investigation that particularly bruised the likes of Marsh McLennan because they were making a fair amount of contingent commissions. These were extremely high margins, partly because of the way the producers are paid out of contingent commissions compared to typical commissions. And the Spitzer investigation ultimately culminated in contingent commissions for the large brokers going away for a period of time, but making a return with some changes to disclosure around contingent commissions. And while there'd still be a ongoing debate about the conflicts of interest and ethics associated with contingent commissions, it's not really a topic of conversation today that I'm aware of. Another area of potential conflict of interest in Gallagher's model specifically is the fact that they run both their wholesale broker RPS and a retail broker. Gallagher's been careful to keep the wholesale broker as a separate brand and always disclose the portion of RPS's revenue that's coming from their retail broker, which is, I think, about 15%, so not disproportionate, and presumably illustrate a decent level of independence there. And while this is not a conflict of interest that I'm aware of, that regulators have been actively looking at, if you, the 10K of an independently listed wholesale broker like Ryan Specialty, they do go to some lengths to point out their non-attachment to a retail brokerage and sort of mention that as a competitive edge because it leaves them free from the perception of any conflicts. Maybe the last thing to touch on regulatory-wise is antitrust. The FCA in the UK in particular has commissioned various studies on anti-competitiveness into insurance broking. Some of them are actually very interesting to read if you want to learn more about the industry. Not that much has come from these studies. There have been some fines for bribery in various instances, but these have tended to be small. And in general, anti-competitive action taken against these companies 
is probably more likely to affect the brokers that operate in large corporate broking, so Aon and Marsh, particularly since they own the largest reinsurance brokers, and that's the most consolidated part of the market. If we look at Gallagher, the mid-market is still very fragmented, which is obviously to their benefit because of their roll-up market, but it seems unlikely that they could be objectively targeted for antitrust, even though if you look at it very, very carefully, there are some obscure niches like K-12 through education where they've probably got about 85% market share, but there wouldn't be readily available stats on something like that, and there's no real indication of abusive market power. And so our customary concluding question is always the same. As you consider Gallagher in the context of the other businesses that you study, as well as management teams that you interact with, what are the lessons that could be learned from this business and applied to both investments and company operations? So I think the obvious answer here is just culture and how really having an incredibly strong cultural DNA that aligns with your core competence is really something that could be dismissed by some companies, but over a very long period of time is something that adds a lot of value. I think that's a bit of a cop-out answer. And so maybe two other observations that I'd make is, number one, just the Lindy effect. So I think that's really something that people would cite for some of the luxury brands that have been around for a long period of time. But I think there's something to it in the case of these insurance brokers. As we spoke about, it's always tempting to talk about disintermediation, but I think going back and looking at just how resilient this industry has been for a century means that the odds are perhaps on your side when betting against future disintermediation. Something else that I've learned from these businesses is that even though they have fairly large market caps, I don't think there's necessarily a secret that's not well known among at least a lot of market participants here. It is possible for a business or even an industry to be structurally underappreciated for very, very long periods of time. And just thinking about Gallagher specifically, they themselves were cheaper than some of the other brokers when we initially looked at it, simply because they hadn't switched their accounting from GAP EPS to what some of the brokers call a cash EPS. It's really meaningless in terms of the economic earnings of these companies. But reading some of the notes, it was always cited as more expensive than some of the other peers. And there were even notes that sort of ignored the fact that Gallagher's organic growth was actually better than the other brokers for quite a period of time. And it's had some other attractive features and were just valuing these companies on a more mechanical basis. And so just thinking from first principles and noticing some of these things, I think was valuable. Right. Well, certainly a unique business in that it's as large and as successful as it is and has compounded at such an attractive rate, yet receives little coverage. So I look forward to learning more about it and watching the story. Thanks. Thanks, Zach. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 